This is the sort of episode of Toby Haydokes Who's Round that would be produced if I was on an 18-month hiatus where I wasn't allowed on television. Right, I've got four stories left to cover. It's, as we speak, it's nearly Christmas 2013, and uh, my next guest wasn't in any of the four stories I've yet to cover because I don't have to cover this one, but I'm going to anyway because that's what I do for you. So I'm going to ask him who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. My name is Nick Revel. I'm a comedian, but in about 1984, I think, but you'll know better than me, I was in a radio episode of uh, Doctor Who called Slip Back. Uh, it was when Colin Baker was the doctor and that's why i'm here talking to you yeah and it was i mean it was a, a time of upheaval for doctor because it wasn't on the telly but for you it was a time of it was the sort of flowering of alternative comedy of which you you know were one of the sort of key purveyors i would say so you were a sort of man of the moment well i was doing a lot of stand-up yes and i was also working a lot at the bbc writing on a lot of programs there and the producer uh, of that Doctor Who sh- show was a guy called Paul Spencer who used to produce the news headlines and week ending and so on and you know it was a very friendly corridor so you you know apart from working with people you kind of knew them and they knew you so he knew my performing skills <laughs> such as they are and he, um, he, he he employed me to do a couple of small parts which of course was great fun because uh, you know I was in Doctor Who for God's sake you know yeah, and do you, remember, do you remember much of Colin? Uh, slightly kind of, not really in that, it was quite sort of, uh, you know, I was quite retiring really, you know, didn't want to be uh, sort of too pushy and stuff, so I sort of kept in the line, out of the, out of the kind of main centre of conversations when we weren't working. And then um, I think Ron, Ron Pe- Pember, Pember who was, was a marvellous yeah, Ron Pember. Yeah, exactly. He was, you know, he was fantastic. Because you, you and he were the two sort of dopey yeah, detectives. That's right, yeah, yeah, that's right. I also played um, a crewman that got killed by a monster, which, of course, was fantastic to have on your CV, you know, the fact <laughs> that you were eaten by a monster on Doctor Who. But I also played a Time Lord. Uh, who has, you, uh, you were told, had a claim to fame, I see. Well, apparently, I'm, I'm, I'm not nowhere near an expert on... on, on Doctor Who, and I know you are, but as far as I understand it, the writer told me that um, he was my Time Lord was the only Time Lord who had uh, contradicted um, Doctor Who and been proved right. Oh, I see. Yeah, the Doctor had Doctor Who had to apologise to me at the end for uh, for being right and him being wrong, and I can't for the life of me remember exactly what the argument was I'm afraid but that's alright I'm but sure it gives you cashier at dinner parties <laughs> absolutely it's what I dine out on to this day <laughs> obviously you know well I've also been a, 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 a comedy writer called Ian Potter um, said that if I got wind of the fact that I was gigging with you tonight and said what about the Doctor Who sketch he and Andy Hamilton did for the Million Pound show <laughs> yeah well, that should be up there available. I can't remember when it was, um, but that's up on my website. All the million pounds are up there on my website, nickrevel.com, with two L's. I say that not for the publicity, but to help people who might want to hear the sketch. Uh, the Cybermen were in it, and uh, Sarah Jane kept falling over and twisting her ankle and so on. Um, as I recall it, it the, the Doctor was cornered by 
the Cybermen, or the Ice Monsters, whoever it was, and said, we have tracked you through time and space for many centuries, Doctor. Finally, uh, we have you at our mercy, and you will tell us the secret we crave. What have you done uh, with our asthma pills? <laughs> um, but it was, you know, it was it was a fairly playful sketch, sort of noting all the uh, all the lovable uh, production budget weaknesses that would be displayed in Doctor Who at that period, like you know, all the outside shots were happening in a disused quarry in Wales, and blah blah blah. You know, it just ran through all the silliness of. Uh, but yes, yes, so I played played a. Played various parts in that as well, really. I don't think I played the Doctor. I think that was probably Jasper Jacob who played the do- Doctor in that sketch. But, uh... So, what is it? Because you mentioned that, you, that the writer... Where, where leads for you, the writing or the performing? Because you've excelled in, in both. <laughs> what was the, the first draw? Isn't it? Um, that's a really good question. Um, it, it, it's hard to separate, really. I suppose the performing was always an instinct there. And then, you know... Uh, and then just gradually started to write stuff so that you could perform, I suppose. Um, and it all derived out of that. And I think I quite like writing more complex stuff. So when I did get the opportunity to write narrative, whether it was more involved sketches or more involved solo stage shows or sitcoms or whatever books, I quite enjoyed the challenge of, you know, pl- I, think I've always had a, I think I've always had an instinct for narrative, even if it's in a small piece of stand-up. I always structure it around a beginning, a middle, and an end, and I, and that comes quite, that kind of, kind of comes quite naturally. I mean, when you're structuring something more complex and permanent, then it's always, as you know, it's really hard work. But uh, I kind of like the challenge of that, you know, sort of weaving things together, weaving stories together, so that it all works. But um, I don't know. There's also something pleasing in a crop rotation, you know, of working on one particular side of things and then going back to performing or writing gags or, you know, so, 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 that, so that you don't get bored, hopefully, with, 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 by sticking on the same thing for too long. But I think that narrative instinct's always been there somehow, telling a tale, whether it's, you know, a tale in a pub or a sitcom or a novel. I think that's probably the common thread. All of it. And I've also noticed that you, as a stand-up, though you stick very fastidiously to doing stuff that is you are that old. It's an old-fashioned phrase in, in in some regards, but not a pejorative one of a political comedian. Even if the climate of the time is going against the grain in stand-up clubs, which it has ebbed and flowed in, yes. that, in the past twenty, thirty years. Yes, I mean, as you know, I don't do exclusively political stuff, but there's always an element of topical comment in there, which normally for me my inclination is to do something with some kind of satirical uh, satirical dart or impulse in it um, and I don't know I mean it, it's not as if you think you're going to change the world by doing it but it's quite nice to be shouting or, or, or expressing the indignation at least at, uh, at all the things that um, that are affecting us and irritating us and I, I, I you know I'm not dogmatic about the kind of comedy I, I like if it's funny it's funny but I do find myself that I don't know for me there's got to be some kind of substance in there you know and that doesn't mean necessarily in my case I think it means some kind of 
political or social comment. But then again, you know, it could be a whimsical comic who, if it's coming from their gut, that's the important thing. And I think a lot of it is so kind of vapid and uninteresting because there's no nothing. All you see, the only impulse you see in the comic sometimes is the desire to show off and be loved by an audience, which you know, let, each of, both of those are less and less appealing to me, really. So I, yeah, I do. I do find uh, a desire to express some kind of resistance, especially at the moment where, you know, I mean, where the hell are we headed at the moment? <laughs> you know, it's, uh, we're in time of crisis and I don't think we're going to come out of it for some time. And, um, you know, uh, I think that needs addressing, you know. Do you uh, feel that an audience, that the audiences have more of an appetite for that since the recession has hit? Not really, no. Um, when I do my solo shows... Uh, then you pleasingly get an audience that come to see it, to see that kind of stuff. Um, but it's let's say it's niche, really. Um, in the in in the in in the clubs, uh, right across from the more mainstream, bigger clubs to the the smaller, friendlier, more intimate clubs. Um, I don't think there's necessarily more of an appetite for that. Um, but then again, you know, the challenge is to make is to make it digestible without losing its meaning to people who didn't necessarily expect to hear it. It becomes a vicious circle as well, because if all the audience used to is seeing stuff on TV or seeing stuff in clubs which doesn't have any kind of political, satirical commitment to it, then if they're not used to it, then they don't expect it, so it takes longer for them to process it. Um, And so it's a question of them getting used to hearing it, really. Um, so yeah, sometimes it can be frustrating, you know, when you think they don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, you know, beyond the broader strokes of we're in a recession and bankers aren't necessarily 100% moral, you know. Um, but 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 when you try and get into the minutiae of it, you, you've got to pick it carefully. But that's a good challenge as well, you know, finding the difference between information and gag, you know. We're doing a live gig tonight, mm. but you've done, you've done, you do live comedy, you've excelled in radio, you've written for television, Drop the Dead Donkey, mm-hmm. amongst mm-hmm. others. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've written prose. What's your favourite medium, or is variety <laughs> what keeps it fresh? I think, yeah, I think probably, ultimately, the variety is good. I really enjoyed writing the two novels that I, that I did, and I'd like to write more, but it's just a question of time and money, you know, unless you're actually being paid to do it, it takes up so much headspace. Um, but you know what I'm trying to do now with the live stuff. I mean, I, I love working. I love I love working the clubs. Uh, I don't feel the need to do the sort of street fighting gigs. I, I prefer to do gigs where you can, you know, throw in different kinds of stuff and actually be a bit more sort of inventive, hopefully, uh, in, in what you do. But what I want to do is. Um, I'm working on one, another one-man show at the moment, which will be essentially stand-up, but with kind of narr- with a sort of comparatively complex narrative structure to it. So it'll be like telling stories on stage, but you know, with the opportunity for some really punchy stand-up in it as well. So I suppose it's, it's an interesting question that you, you that you put to me there, you know, because I've just been thinking about that the last few days, and I suppose in a way that's sort of melding some of the different different strands that I do into the same thing really uh, you know that kind of narrative complexity but try and th- sort of make it work uh, on stage 
um, on stage with a pace and you know a high enough gag rate to keep people laughing. Well, well take me that though, because we sort take me back because we sort of took for granted the idea that the reason you got the Doctor Who gig was because you were in the corridors of the BBC, but you were yeah. very much you know at the forefront of that sort of stand-up Radio Four comedy. So, so how did um, you got to that position? Right. Well, uh, when I was at university. Uh, I left in 1980, and so from about 19... I was doing review shows and so on, and uh, one of the other guys I worked with, a guy called Tony Sarche, is a very funny writer. We, we kind of came out to each other as secretly wanting to do it for real. You know, it felt a kind of sort of impossible, pretentious kind of dream. And so we started, we started writing for... Um, we started writing for Weekending, which is a radio, long-running radio topical show. And the great thing about it was, well, one, one of the great things about it was that it was on just about every week of the year. So you could send one-liners in and then send one-liners in the next week and get feedback or not or listen to the show. So you could always be trying to hit a deadline and turning stuff out regularly. And sold a few gags there, sold a few, little, a couple of little sketches to not the nine o'clock news. And, uh, um, and then when I left university, the comedy store had been going for about a year. Um, and I thought, well, I, I had no intention of being a stand-up. I was interested in it through mainly the Richard Pryor movie that had come out that year and also I'd been getting into Lenny Bruce and some of the sort of political or more interesting stand-ups mainly American ones I mean I like over here in terms of people who were talking about personal experience in any way really you only had Billy Connolly Dave Allen Jasper Carrot uh, um, and then a couple of other folk um, and I really liked them but, you know, there wasn't any sort of idea of being a stand-up. But I thought, well, I'll go and try it because you could just basically turn up and do an open spot. Um, and even though it was terrifying and I didn't do terribly well, I managed to get through five minutes without being gonged off because the gong was always there at that point. It was one of the major selling points. Um, but I was just bitten by the bug by watching other people doing it, 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 doing it extremely well in what, to me, was the most terrifying room I'd ever been in in my life and I thought I really want to do this so I started trying to develop the stand-up and I was doing other things as well I was in a theatre company I was writing sketches still for, for for radio mainly the odd tv thing so all those things were going as little kind of seedlings and and gradually over the next sort of I guess 18 months uh started to you know make at least a kind of subsistence living at it and started getting booked at the comedy store early 1982 and so that then became pretty central really I was still uh, and I'd again through being at radio and working on shows you met other writers and performers and I ended up as a result of that doing some live a live sketch show with amongst others Andy Hamilton and Guy Jenkin who right dropped their donkey and outnumbered and so on and Andy and I ended up doing a, a double act we worked really well actually and so that became a radio sketch show the million pound radio show and then other things came out of that so that was the sort of thread really it was just you know throwing stuff out there and then gradually one thing led to another you know and uh, but the stand-up yeah it was an exciting time because it was I think the best way of describing it, it was, it was a bit like to comedy what punk was to rock and roll. You know, there was, a, there was a definite sense of what we weren't and what we were against, which was obviously a bit excessive, really, you know, at, at the time. But, you know, there was a, with, with all new iconoclastic movements, there was a very definite sense of us and them. And, of course, politically, it was a, 
I think politically people were feeling it more than with Thatcher being in it first. So culturally, it occupied quite an important point in the, in the subculture. Um, and it was very exciting to sort of be on the sort of second wave of that, you know, after the comic strip, big names. Then people like myself, Paul Merton, Mark Steele. You know, we were coming up together, Jeremy Hardy, early early uh, 80s and it was an exciting time because we didn't you know there was no there was no path there was no rules there was no there were no precedents you know we were finding out how to do it both commercially and creatively as we went along you know but it's, it's curious because we, you know we started this conversation talking about and you quite bluntly said you know audiences don't necessarily have an appetite for political comedy as much which is curious because when we think of the circuit we both perform in the birth of that yeah. was the breakout of political comedy, and so yeah. the thing, the very thing that gave place, that gave birth to the places yeah. that we're performing in, now doesn't seem to be a repository for that. Yeah, I think it's, but I think in a way that's the path of all kind of cultural movements or artistic movements is that you know they start off on the outside and then they become more, uh, they become, they build to the point where they become more main stream uh, and so they become accommodated into the into the mainstream and so the edge goes off them or disappears for a while or changes its shape and so on and I don't know how much one you know one can't necessarily control control that and it's you know it's it's happenstance where you get some kind of big new splash in whatever art form it might be that seems to be the vanguard um, I think it's just the way things go really um, and, you know and there's an in, it, it, it's interesting trying to you know trying to work trying to strike that balance between being employable or being able to make a living out of it and not compromising your ideals but then again you know would I have a clear idea of what those ideals are only in the broad only in a broad sense you, you know, you, you're constantly redefining that. Sometimes you can lose sight of it. You know, suddenly if you're doing, I don't know, say at Christmas, for example, you know, we all know there's quite a lot of work around at Christmas. We all know it can be quite thankless because you get lots of amateur drinkers and you get lots of people who don't go to comedy clubs generally. So through Christmas, I will do broader, I will do the more, broader, more accessible parts of my act and not seek to provoke or go on an edge, really, because I know that. The audience aren't really there for that, and it's not their fault. And I don't mind, I don't mind going a bit more mainstream and accessible in those circumstances because I think that's just part of the, the job. And it can be fun just making people laugh for its own sake, you know. Then at other times you you you'll you'll stretch out and and you know take more risks. But again, once you once you got to the point where you know you've got solid stuff that works pretty much at the flick of a switch to any audience, then it's very tempting just to, just to work within that seam and not have the constant nagging sense of, oh, I should write more ter- material, I should take more risks, I should try other things. Because, you know, it, as you know, it, it pushes your adrenaline up, pushes your stress up. All those kind of personal things, you know, are part of the kind of decisions that you make um, to you know, on on how radical or how mainstream you're going to be. I mean, I, uh, so you know, it's an insidious thing rather than a conscious choice. I think. I mean, you know, I pity people who clearly just want to do it just just to be famous, though, which you know has never been a particular attraction for me. 
certainly the closer that I got to it, you know, when I was getting quite a lot of TV, I thought, I don't really want this <laughs> at all, you know. And what, what was it? Was it the, 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 the side effects of that or was it the world? Yeah, I think just the idea of not being, of being public property. I mean, not that I was ever a huge household name, but I was getting enough TV to be, you know, recognised and, and uh, it's always very nice, you know, if people, in a way, but at the same time, suddenly realise that you can't be anonymous when you want to be anonymous. My, my idea would be to have a, a really good reputation by name and for nobody to know my face, you know, which, again, is an impossible ideal. But I found it very uncomfortable, mm-hmm. even just getting that first sort of taste of being, you know, known. And I think that's another co- component of, you know, if you're going to be mainstream, you, you've not only got to have a, a certain kind of drive in whatever category, whether you're purely mainstream or whether you're high-profile radical, you know, whether you're... Uh, I can't even... S- bear to say his name but if you're if you're one of the sort of big mainstream comics or whether you're uh, Mark Steele or Eddie Izzard or whatever you've still got to be able to deal with the fact that you're or, or Mark Thomas you, you, you've got to deal with the idea that you're you're known to that degree and um, and, and it's and I think it's a it's a component that you either have or you don't have both the drive for it and the ability to deal with it and, and accept it you know I like being able to you know, I like being able to be anonymous, really, which of course is not, not not terribly useful when you're in a job where self-promotion is an <laughs> integral part of survival. You know, so I, I guess that's where writing comes in. And, and I mean, mm. since we've we flirted with your your association with Andy Hamilton, we've mentioned Drop the Dead Donkey, which as as stand-up comedy was sort of losing. Um, it's topical remit yes. in a way the yes. Drop the Dead Donkey for the, the uninitiated and it's definitely a show that's worth revisiting was, was a very clever synthesis of character comedy yep. but that was recorded in the week that it was broadcast that's so right. you put in you put in a seam of topical jokes we as well yes we did and we would be rewriting it up until in fact after the show was recorded we always used to do an audio bit at, over the credit, closing credits which would be written on the day of transmission so something that had broken that morning so it was, yeah, it, was, it, it, it did have a, a, a topical, a strong topical element. And it was also weird how the kind of general, the general issues that we would put into storylines when we were writing the scripts, knowing that they would sort of be around when it was being recorded, it was extraordinary the number of times that they became acutely topical in the week. There was a runner, for example, one week, which was Damien, who was this ruthless, ambitious reporter, uh, testing the security in various uh, high security sites around Britain so he broke into a nuclear power station and got beaten up uh, maybe an army base can't remember and then into, broke into one of the royal family's houses Sandringham or whichever and that week um, some Etonians broke into Windsor Castle some pissed you know Etonian schoolboys so that's that whole thread appeared like it had been written in As the week spots, you know yeah. but it was just but that used to happen quite often you know but it was a great show to work on because, you know, I mean, Andy and Guy are brilliant writers. I learned a hell of a lot, of, hell of a lot about TV production and how to really, you know, write a script and how to work with actors. We had a lot of... The other thing that was notable about that show was that when they brought on three other writers after the second series, yeah. I think, um, we had, a, when we, we had a, an incredible amount of autonomy. I mean, you effectively produced or co-produced your own episodes. You know, you, 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 you were giving notes at rehearsal, you were in, in the edit, and you were, you know, you were actually... Uh, you, you, your, your opinion and your 
your opinion on how to cut it and and how to make it was was respected and 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 part of the process and that doesn't always happen and i think it's i think it's a sh- i mean funnily enough i worked on another sitcom just after working on drop their donkey where they wouldn't allow us into rehearsals and I think in a way it was down to the lack of confidence. I think it comes down to confidence. If you've got confidence in your own ability, as Guy and Andy have, then you know how to delegate responsibility. Whereas if you're uncertain in your position, then somebody who appears a threat, you're going to try and sideline them. And I was working on this sitcom where um, we'd turn up at the dress rehearsal. We wouldn't be allowed in rehearsal. We'd go to the table read at the beginning of the week and then the dress rehearsal in the studio. And they, I remember one way they were saying to us, well, there's this, there's all these lines aren't working now. I said, well, no, because you've taken out all the setups for them. We had a whole very elegant structure of, in this particular episode, of gags that were set up two or three lines ahead. And they'd sort of seen the laugh, but not understood that the setup was integral. So they'd taken them out. And, you know, it's, it's, it's extraordinary how you realise how people don't quite understand and sometimes don't understand the, what you take for granted as, a, 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 you know, the obvious, but you realise, actually, I kind of know what I'm talking about here. But, yeah, Drop Don- Dead Donkey was great for that, for, well, for being a good show to work on. And, and you shared a lovely uh, anecdote about uh, a, a particular guest star, Neil Kinnock, with uh, Bob Mills and I earlier, so it, it bears repeating for the record. Well, there was an episode of Drop the Dead Donkey which revolved around, it was the end of season, end of season show, and it revolved around a press awards ceremony, uh, and there were all kinds of things going on, um, one of the threads was that Damien, the, the ruthless, ambitious reporter who was played by Stephen Tomkinson, he had this arch rival called Lynn. I can't remember his name. Lynn Yates. Lynn Yates. Well done, man. God. I was a big fan. So Lynn Yates won this award that was between her and Damien, you know, and he was furious. So later on in the episode where everybody was drunk at the ceremony, she said something to provoke him and he, he ended up knocking her over and was attacking her and Neil Kinnock had played the, the, the guest of honour at the, at the dinner and he was still there and he turns around and, and, and it, it ends on uh, Kinnock uh, rugby tackling um, Steve Tomkinson and pinning him against the wall and, and, and beating him up or you know just physically restraining him and, um, and in, in rehearsal he went in really hard with this, this smother tackle Hitting Steve in the, in the in the ribs quite hard, and um, and uh, so Andy gave the note. He said, "Yeah, that was very realistic, Neil. Uh, when you uh, when you when you hit uh, when you hit Steve in there, if you could just sort of ease off the uh, the if you just ease off a little bit, uh, because you did quite you know, did hurt him quite badly, and we want him for the next season, you know." And <laughs> said, "I'm sorry, I apologise, and I, I of course I'll I'll restrain myself. It's just that." I could never, my innate sense of morals means that I could never stand idly by and watch a man knock a woman down and kick her when she was lying on the floor. With one obvious exception. <laughs> uh, now, as we uh, draw to a close, thank you for your time because this is—we've been doing a Christmas gig together. Yeah, but, uh, very nice uh, one, actually. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't bad. Oh, yes, and actually, you talk about um, bits of material that you know really work. Uh, and so, if you'll indulge me, you, you did a classic piece tonight that you always do, which um, I would urge people to uh, seek you out live to see. But explain. Um, 
the genesis and, and what the audience are missing if they've not seen your Bird's Dawn Chorus um, um, showpiece. Really. Yeah, well, I don't. It's one of those ideas that falls into your head and you think, God, I wish I could have just that happen once a year because I just had the idea and I thought, well, this, is, this piece, I can just work it out on stage because the premise is so strong and, it can, and it's refined down now into quite a nice bit with definite, you know, definite moments in it. But the basic idea was that, I don't know whether I read it or whether it occurred to me, but that, you know, the dawn chorus sounds so beautiful. I love it. I mean, I, I'm a bit of a bird watcher anyway. And so it's, yeah. But all the dawn chorus actually is, it, all this pretty bird song, it, it, it's all mating calls and territorial threats. So I just do it, to tra- I translate it into English, really, which becomes fairly fundamental simple English words as you know with a, with a stress on certain uh, well with, on one particular Anglo-Saxon word which is now polyvalent within our language and uh, I use it in all its polyvalency uh, within the rhythm of a bird singing you know and it um, uh, it's a sort of a fight between two male birds vying over a female but it's uh, sort of reduced to the to the barest simplicity in language yeah it's, it's just one of those great things where you know, as a comic, they're always the best, aren't they? Whereas a watching comic, you go, "That's so obvious. Yeah, Why didn't I think yeah, of it?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, absolutely. you haven't thought of it for twenty years, and yeah, boom, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, well, look, well, thank you for time. Oh, did I did I hear a rumor that, that you you actually recorded a scene in the Matt Smith episode, "Time of the Angels," that was edited out? <laughs> uh, um, I will have done that in a different dimension, but uh, but as 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 far as I'm aware. No. Oh, I slipped him a fiver, but never mind. I, my search will continue. Um, but uh, what I didn't prime you for, I normally prime people for this, is because you've very kindly given me your time, and this is a free podcast, I ask you to nominate a charity, Nick, for the listeners to donate to. Oh, wow. Well, at the moment, I think Shelter would be fab- fabulous because uh, we're all seeing um, the need for that t- particular charity to have more uh, support and... Um, yeah, brilliant. And the final thing, we were nominally brought together to talk about Doc 2, but as ever, the conversation's gone to lots of interesting places. Thank you for your time. But it, we record this in the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who, Nick, and yeah. I know your experience with it was only a, a brief one, <laughs> but uh, what is your message to the Doctor Who fans out there? Um, well, you've got good taste, I think. It's such a great show, isn't it? I saw the first episode. Yeah. 50 years ago yeah. this year, that was. Yeah. Same weekend, of course, that Kennedy got shot. That's right. Yeah. God. No, I, you know, it's, I think it's fantastic the way it, the show, as well as the Doctor, keeps you know, reinventing and regenerating himself. And uh, I'm, not an, I'm not an avid addict to it, as I know you are, but you know, it's one of those things which is always very enjoyable to watch. I kind of liked it when they had longer, when the storylines went over more episodes somehow. Yeah. You know, I quite liked the, the, the unfolding being a bit more... Uh, a bit, a bit, bit, of, bit of a slower pace, but you know what they do with it. I think Stephen Moffat and uh, Russell T Davis. I mean, just the kind of, just the creative passion and confidence that they have, and it's the same with, uh, it's the same with Sherlock. You know, it's just, it's great. It's great TV, and it's you know, it's it, it's great that it works, functions, and attracts such a broad range of listenership of watchers you know from viewers that's the technical term isn't mm-hmm. it? from you know from what from six to six hundred i don't i don't i don't have to hide behind the sofa now though 
That's lost a bit of <laughs> lost a bit of its magic when you don't get terrified by the uh, monsters in quite the same way. Yeah, but um, we do hide behind the sofa when we have Christmas audiences to play to. So <laughs> that's <laughs> certainly mentally. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, that's brilliant. We had a good one tonight, though. Didn't we? Yeah, we did all right. We, nice we room. survived we unscathed. Yeah, it beautifully. Yeah. So. Well, brilliant. Well, I look forward to working with you again. But no, for co- contributing to this podcast, Nick Revel. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, man. Brilliant. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Toby. Bless <laughs> you. That was really great. That'll be really interesting. Thanks, Nick. Uh, as we went out into the cold winter's evening, we've been performing together at the 99 Club Covent Garden, over the road, outside the Donmar Warehouse, guess who we saw? Peter Capaldi, who had yet to make an appearance as Doctor Who, but was uh, signing autographs quite happily and posing for photographs, and uh, I suppose a proper journalist would have rushed up to him and asked him to do uh, who's round, but I'm not a proper journalist, so I didn't, so it just went away. But Doctor uh, Who seemed to be in the air. Nick's charity is Shelter, which is www.shelter.org.uk. Fine charity that does lots of work for homeless people. So donate to them if you can, and uh, you'll be hearing from me again in about seven days' time. Do you know, I, I, I was never aware of any of that. I was never aware of any of the political side. I think no. you, you're so busy doing your own job. I miss sure around. The and, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, you, you were it's, so it's only when, 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 you, when you then talk to other people and you go, and you go really? Oh, yeah. And you think, well, where was I? When, and it's because you were in the makeup room. Yeah, it's because they're they, quickly changing somebody. But that's something. true. I mean, because well, I, I'm always amazed at the politics that went on because he well, didn't you know that? I said, but he said, but they, they hate each other. <laughs> I said, but they're always together. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, Planet of the Rani. She's a tyrant. But she's a prisoner here, yes? Death to the Rani on the walls. Well, someone's been having a riot. Well, she is still here. (laughs) Not out on the loose, causing your own inimitable brand of mayhem across the galaxy. And that woman, she was there, the Rani. Next, you'll be telling me she's completely reformed. Where is she? What are you doing here? Where's the doctor? Ah. I insist you take us to him now. No. And the Rani, wherever she is. Surely you haven't let her go. Don't fret, doctor. I'm still here. Big finish. We love stories.